Welcome to Beatitudes, where your host, Dr. Kwamenique Sukina, will give you tools to experience wisdom in your everyday life. Listen each week as Dr. Kwamenique Sukina shares stories that will help guide your faith, perspective, and attitude in every situation. This is Dr. Sukina of Indigenous Messengers International, and here is our host. Today, we're going to be talking about be understanding, therefore empathetic. When I was in my 20s and 30s and I was raising my two sons, I just couldn't imagine a time that I would no longer be in the inner circle with my sons. We were a family. We were a unit. And I just couldn't imagine a time when that wouldn't exist. As mothers, our children are the focus of our lives. And being natural nurturers, much of our time and our energy and our focus is wrapped up in them. That's just the way God made us to be. We, have to, we carry these babies. We birth these babies. We take care of these children. We have a real high tolerance at times for even unacceptable things because we need to do that as moms. As a result of this, it's really difficult to imagine our lives having to make this radical shift in a short period of time. It just kind of comes upon you all of a sudden. And the teenage years kind of move you along to where you're like, oh, you know, this is, this is hard. And, you know, I, I'm looking forward to a time that I have a little more time to focus on myself. And in the teenage years, a lot of times children become more adversarial because they're trying to individuate from us, especially with their moms, especially sons and their moms, because they're going into that time of manhood, and that's just a natural part of the process. You know, I'd heard about empty nest syndrome. In my 20s and 30s, I didn't think about it much when I was younger, and, and, and frankly, I, I didn't really think it was going to affect me, because I was, by the time I had teenagers, I was really looking forward to having some time, you know, more space in my life. And, but I imagined that my life with my adult children would replicate the life that I had had with my parents in my adult years, and it didn't. After I launched, you know, and had my own children when I was an adult, I lived in the same town with my folks, and I spent a lot of time in our family homestead. I was the oldest sibling, a lot of years difference. My younger brother, John, was four and a half years younger. And then my brother, Bruce, was 11 and a half years younger. And Tom was 14 and a half years younger. And so I was the first one to launch. So the family was still intact. And so I would go back over there with my kids. And I just spent a lot, a lot of time there in our family homestead with my family. And we were all local. No one had moved away. So we gathered for birthdays and holidays and Dropping visits. I lived in the same town with with my mom and dad for a long time, and and even when I moved, I was like twenty minutes away, so it wasn't that far. And I could drop in and grab a meal with my extended family. And as my brother brothers grew up and married and had kids, they did the same. You know, they were they were there for all the holidays, and and I honestly, I just took that for granted. I just thought it would always be that way, but it wasn't. First, foremost, is I was the mother of sons, not daughters, and that that does make a difference. And when my sons individuated, they made their way all the way across the United States to build their lives out west, and it was a four-day travel time for me 
to get to them and an all day plane ride. And as men, they weren't were they weren't the regular phone calls that, you know, I'd made to my mother to chat and have girl talk. It it just wasn't the same kind of connection. And then when texting came along, calls became written words on the phone and were doled out in short communications. <laughs> and then I missed not only their faces, but I also missed their voices. I thought a lot about what it must have been like back in the olden days when, you know, People would go out west, and you wouldn't see your kids again. And letters would take a year to get to you, you know, and you wouldn't even know if they were okay or not. You know, it, it, it was, but, you know, that was a time, a different time. This is a different time, but I was used to that time where there was just more connection. And that's when I realized really what empty nest really was, my, that my eagles were not going to be flying back to spend time in my nest with me like I'd done with my mother when my children were young. So I wasn't really, I was thinking of empty nest. Well, I won't miss my kids. I'll still see my kids. They'll be coming back home. And, and I remember I built two swimming pools. <laughs> that slogan, if you build it, they will come, that, that's from that movie. And I built two swimming pools, and, and one of them, they never swam. Uh, I think they came to the house one time. And in, in the other pool I had, uh, maybe three times in four and a half years, their lives are busy. You know, they're in the 40-year making a living, building, and it's a different time than things used to be. It, it, it really has, our culture has changed. So at some point, I moved my nest closer to them to try to capture what I'd experienced and, and what I'd expected to have. I thought, well, I'm just too far, so I'll just get closer. And as as we learn in 12-step recovery, we, we say expectations are resentments waiting to happen. You know, I, I was disappointed in that. Although I was closer, I still didn't experience the connectedness that I had with them when we were a family unit, when we were all a part of the same family unit. I just thought that would always just stay that way, that intensely. One day I was lamenting about my disappointment and my sadness, and I was wishing for more with them. You know, I, I was wanting to have that connection, and I was asking God for wisdom on how to handle my pain, and, and God communicated to my heart through a film-like scene in my head. I saw this kind of like little movie, and I saw a film crew filming a movie on a stage, and on the stage in the principal roles were my sons and their wives, and I was standing over to the side in the wings. I wanted to be on the stage with them so I could participate fully with them. And God said to me, Quamanique, this is not your play. You are not the director. You are not the producer. You are not the leading actor. At one time, it was your play. And you were in a leading role with your children. They were acting more as supporting actors in your play. Now this is their play. They are the lead actors in this play and the producers and the directors. You are a supporting actress in this play. You will have very few lines and you will be in the wings much of the time. However, your lines are very important and you will be adding support to the play. The supporting actress role is very important. That is why there is an Academy Award for it. You are needed in this play in a different role. Wow. <laughs> you know, how clear, how clear can God be? It's not my play. It's theirs. This is when I realized that I had to let go of what was 
and what I expected and move into what is. I would have to grieve the loss of unfulfilled expectations and shift my perspective toward understanding. Understanding my new role, understanding life from their perspective, understanding that times have changed and culture has changed, and understanding that my sons are not me and therefore have different desires for their own lives. I can't put my desires of the life I want onto them. Having had this movie played for me in my head, it really helped me to get it. Like to see life from not only their perspective, but from God's perspective, from a higher place, a higher view, a bird's eye view. It opened my mind. I can't say I've been able to be perfect in my supporting actress role, but, but I can tell you that I've been far better than if I hadn't been given that understanding. Had I not been given that understanding, I probably would have been kicked off the stage several times trying to deliver a leading actor's line instead of my God-given supporting actor's lines. You know, understanding is so important in relationships. It helps us be more versatile, more flexible. It also helps us predict what others might feel in a situation, and that allows us to be thoughtful in our dealings with other people. This is not something I do. I'm not wired to do this so well. So I'm sharing with you all these Beatitudes are things I'm sharing. They're still struggles for me. They're still things I ascribe to or aspire to. I am just letting you know things that God has said to me and, and things that he's dropped into me that I'm still struggling on sometimes, working toward. Understanding is as foundational as love in a relationship in in. In fact, when I was doing research on understanding, it said that actually it's more important than love sometimes in relationships. Understanding, it's needed in order to sustain a relationship. And it doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean we have to agree with people, but it means allowing others to be different and them allowing us to be different and getting the awareness of why others think and feel and act the way that they do that it's probably going to be different from us. When we understand one another, conflicts can be resolved a lot more quickly. When we can feel where another person is coming from and get that view, it helps us to be more understanding, more flexible. Understanding where another person's coming from, it it allows us also to have empathy toward that person, and that empathy builds trust in the relationship because people trust empathy. They lean toward it. Even in the scriptures where it says, it's your loving, it's your loving kindness that, that causes to repentance. I mean, it's God's loving kindness that makes us trust him and want to move toward him in those times when we're out of sync or we're, you know, we're not doing what we need to do on our end, you know, call it sinning or whatever, missing the mark, whatever you would want to call that. But it's his loving kindness. It's his empathy and compassion. And it says in the scriptures that Yeshua was, he healed by compassion. He was led by compassion to heal. So that's the importance of having empathy and compassion on board. I want to share with you uh, another experience I had where understanding and empathy were so necessary. They were needed and very necessary. In 2008, we lived in Nashville, and there was a feral cat that had a litter of kittens on our land there. And the kittens, they wouldn't allow us to get near to them like because they were so wild. They were little, and we get up to them, and they do that. <laughs> you know, where they stick their tongues out and put their little claws out. 
And they're, feral cats can be quite fierce. So it's not like they're not dangerous. They can be. The mother disappeared at some point with her kittens except for one that was left behind, this little yellow tabby, and we named her Elohei after the Cherokee word for shalom or peace, and we called her Ellie, and we began leaving food out for her, and she was totally wild, and she wouldn't let us near to her, and at that point, we had a couple other cats, and we were like, we don't need another cat in the house, so we were trying to be tough, you know, like, we, we just don't really need another cat. We'll just feed her outside and let her be wild. And winter came along, and we got worried about her because of the cold. So we placed hay bales all around our storage bin so that she could get inside of them and keep warm. And we continued this relationship with Ellie for about 18 months. We fed her. We put food out for her, but we she wouldn't let us near her. We would see her come and going. And if, she would, if we would walk near her even to put the food down, she would run and hide. Well, in 2009, we were led to move across country, and we were really concerned that the new owners would not have the same feeling for Ellie that we did, and, and they wouldn't leave her food, and that she had become dependent on her food from us. So we felt a responsibility to that. And we decided we, we were just going to go ahead and take her with us to California. But first, we'd have to tame her in order to bring her into our home to be able to make that trip cross-country with her in a truck. So we went out and got a safe trap, and we caught her, and we took her to the vet, to get her shots and have her checked. And the veterinary said, this cat's never going to be an indoor cat. It's never going to tame, always going to be dangerous. Because he said, when we let her out of the safe trap in her office, she actually climbed the walls. He said, we had to try to get her down and then sedate her to even check her and give her the shots. So, you know, that was discouraging. We were discouraging, but we were not willing to give up on her. You know, the articles I read about feral cats, they weren't very encouraging either. You know, and I just figured we're just going to have to pray and ask for guidance and how to live with Ellie. I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. But I just asked for guidance, and I intuitively did some things that I think were probably I was led by a, a power greater than myself, by the Lord. We brought her home, and she was still sedated in her cat carrier, and I felt led to put her in the ba in our master bath that was attached to our bedroom with the door closed because I wanted to provide a smaller space for her to feel safe in. And so I placed her, you know, put her, her cat carrier right behind the toilet, and I opened it up so she could actually jump in it. Well, she would jump out of it, you know. She was still in it, sedated. And then I placed her litter box on one side of the toilet, and I placed her food and water on the other side of the toilet because I didn't want her to have to travel very far from her bed and her needs because I knew that she'd feel unsafe. She'd feel trapped, and that wasn't going to be good. I felt led to put a lower, lowering the light in the bathroom, so I brought in a small table lamp so she didn't have the, the, the bright lights. And I, I used, my husband and I used the guest bathroom <laughs> We went in there to use the toilet so we wouldn't disturb her safe place because it would have freaked her out for us to use the toilet. And we would, we would just go in and out of the room a couple times a day, and we would just sit there across the room. We would sing. We would pray out loud. 
we read out loud so she could get to know our voice. And we just stayed on the other side of the room from her. At first, you know, I was trying to make eye contact. I wanted her to make a connection. And she would hiss and just go crazy. And, and so I did some research. And I read that when you look directly at a wild cat into their eyes, they see that as a threat. So we stopped making eye contact with her because we wanted her to feel safe. And I was trying to learn about her. That's why I did research on it, to increase my understanding so I could see where she was coming from. If I hadn't done research to increase my understanding, I would have continued to look at her, which would have been a threat to her because I thought of eye contact as a good thing. It was not when she was in her unsafe place. And the more I learned, the more I understood, the more empathy that I had for her. It increased. Understanding can increase empathy. And the more empathy that I had, the more patience I had. This went on for about three weeks. And one day she walked out from the back of the toilet and jumped up in my lap. I remember calling my husband in and saying, she's in my lap. And then she jumped up in his lap. And she's been a lap cat ever since. She's the one of the most loving of our cats. And she was the wild, feral one that they said would never tame. It was not possible. And I'm just always reminded of there's nothing impossible with God. She responded to understanding and empathy. It developed safety in her. It opened her up to love and it changed her life. I remembered also as a child how I felt in my alcoholic home, very unsafe. When my dad would be drunk, it was horrible. The safety level went down. And then, you know, I'd want to be near my parents' room at night because I would have night terrors because just what that was doing to me as a child. But I feared my dad being out of control because one night when I was asleep with my mom in her bed, when I was about four, he came in drunk and he was smoking a cigarette in the bed and caught the bed on fire. It was so traumatic. And I feared sleeping in the bed with him after that. But I also needed to be near my mother in order to feel safe because she was the non-alcoholic parent. She was the, the only safety that I had. So to be near my mother in order to feel safe with her, I would creep into the bathroom near to their room. I would get out of the bed between them, sneak out of the bed, get in, go into the bathroom, take towels out of the closet, and make a pad for myself behind the toilet. I was only four so it was little enough in order to feel safe so that I could at least sleep. Couldn't sleep down the hall alone, night terrors. Couldn't sleep in the bed with them, you know, too dangerous. So I had to have a place near. And that experience helped me to have understanding for Ellie. I didn't realize it till years later that I had actually done for Ellie and put her behind the toilet. I didn't have a cognitive awareness that I was doing that based on what I'd done for myself. But I knew that feeling of all you know is survival and not trusting humans because that's what had happened to me. And I knew for her to feel safe, she would have to build trust over time. That's what therapists do with people who have trauma when they go in and do trauma therapy and different things or in relationships, if you, you know, when you've been through things, you have to rebuild trust. My suffering had built compassion in me for other living things. I didn't view Ellie as a wild, untamable cat. I viewed her as an unsafe animal who had never learned to trust. And I knew if she could feel safe, it would change her behavior, and it did. 
The suffering I've been through allowed me to have empathy for her and allowed me to put myself in her place. And that made me have compassion. Even when it put me out, I had to walk down to the other end of the house and use the other bathroom. It gave me patience because I could relate, because I had some understanding. When we have empathy, it builds compassion, and it motivates us to make sacrifices without resentment and grudges. That's what understanding can do. I still have to work on building empathy in my life, and often the person I have the least empathy is for myself. That's the way it is for many of us. We can be quite hard on ourselves. I'm going through another time of challenging right now at the loss of my brother, and I had a traumatic experience where I you know, was choking to death in a restaurant, and I had to get someone run up and get someone, show them to do the Heimlich maneuver. It was traumatic. And it's very easy in those situations to be hard on yourself. Why am I struggling? Why? Because I would go into restaurants for a, a, about a, a month after that, and I would get in there, and I would have a hard time swallowing. And even, even as a therapist in my training, it was hard for me to understand Quamanique, you know, you went through a traumatic experience. Your body is responding to that. Many of us have been in faith-based organizations where we're not supposed to struggle. There's not supposed to be a struggle. Well, it says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. There's struggle involved in that. And we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Our bodies don't always line up with Scripture exactly like we, we want them to because we live in a broken and a fallen world. We have to build some compassion for ourselves. Ellie's now 15 years old, and she's repaid my kindness with empathy and caring toward me. She's the cat who can tell when I'm in pain, (laughs) tell when I'm stressed out, and she'll come up to me and meow, meow, meow until I lay down on the floor so she can groom me by licking my hair. She's the most intuitive cat that we have, and she's the most compassionate one. She's precious, and, and I'm so glad that we applied that understanding to her circumstance and acted empathetically toward her. Would that we as humans could all do that more for one another and have that kind of patience. The world would be a much better place. Empathy is a superpower. It's the ability to understand and share in the feelings and situations of another person. That's a privilege. That's an honor. It's not like an obligation. It's not sympathy where we feel sorry for somebody. It's about putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and feeling with them and connecting to them in their pain. It's about being like a midwife and being able to be a witness for them, just showing up. Empathy is not just emotional, as in a feeling what the other person's feeling, but it's also cognitive, like in understanding another person's perspective. I love what Brene Brown states in her word picture. She says, Sympathy is about seeing a person in a hole, but remaining on higher ground and talking to them from above, whereas empathy is climbing down in the hole to sit with them. Alongside emotional empathy and cognitive empathy, there's also compassionate empathy, and that's empathy that, mo- that spontaneously moves us to help others if needed, to reach out you know, and help someone else in a time of need. That's compassionate empathy. It's, it's empathy with legs on it. Now, some people are more prone to empathy than others. And that's hard to understand. Um, if you are wired with a lot of empathy, it's difficult to understand there are people that don't have it 
or they're, they're, that it's lower for them. And sometimes some of your wired people that are really intellectually and thinkers, you know, they're not always wired deeply as feelers. And so they're, they have to work harder at empathy than other people. It, it's harder for them, actually, to feel that. And whereas empaths are people with imp- that have an uh, inordinate amount of empathy, they have to work hard at not feeling as deeply. In the last few years, people with an inordinate amount of empathy are called highly sensitive people or empaths. And empaths are the opposite of narcissists. Narcissists have little or no empathy for others, whereas empaths have a, a great amount. Now, to say a little bit about the empath, you know, I am an empath myself. And a lot of people that are empathetic are, are empaths, are drawn into the helping professions, um, because they have a high level of compassion and, and they have a high level of compassion and empathy where they want to help. Empaths are highly intuitive individuals and they're going to pick up on subtle cues in the environment. It, it, it enables them to read people and their motives and, they ha- and, and have gut level instincts. Um, and sometimes that, that can be a little weird. <laughs> you're like, you're connecting on a different level and you pick up on things and other people can read empaths as oh, that person is so, you know, corked up or over the top or wound too tight. Or, you know, I told you in, a, in a, another podcast about, my, about God speaking to me and saying I was like a violin and he had, he had strung the strings very tightly so that the least amount of wind that went over them vibrated. And, and he was trying to get me to have understanding that I was wired that way by him. It, I, I, I didn't need therapy for it. I might need to learn how to manage it. But it wasn't like it was a sickness. It wasn't a codependency. It was the way God had made me. Empaths care greatly about other people and and desire that others feel safe and secure. One of the things that has always been important to me is that I've always wanted I've always wanted people to feel like that I provide a sacred space for them when I was a therapist. And I wanted them to feel safe. Because that was something that I needed, and I wanted to create that for others. But this can make boundary setting for impasse difficult because sometimes we are motivated by need. Um, I had a dream one time, and in this dream, I dreamed that I had these two children I was responsible for, and 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 I came out of this. I was in the hospital at the time in the dream, and I was trying to find out where my two children had gone. I had had surgery in the dream, and I woke up and. And my, my, the two children I was responsible for were gone. And so I went up to a nurse and I said, can you tell me where these children are? And, and she, the nurse said, they're in the L-shaped panel buildings. That's where they send the children is to the L-shaped panel buildings. And I was like, what in the world? So I decided to go try to find where they were. And I went down these stairs in the dream and I opened this door and I walked into a birthing unit. And it was like a time of war because it was like there were not enough doctors and and there were women on gurneys having babies. And, and I got caught up. It was like because of the need, I was there. I was trying to help. And people were saying, come over here and help this woman and grab this baby. And and then I remembered, oh, my goodness, I, I've got to get to those two children, you know, that are unattended that I'm responsible for. 
And so I, getting through that room was like walking through molasses. I was pulling, trying to, pulling away from people, trying to get through that room. And I thought, I got to the door finally, and I thought, finally, I can get through this door. I opened the door and walked into an operating room. <laughs> and it was the same intensity, except people were getting operated on. And someone grabbed me and said, I need this, hand me this tool, and hand me that tool, and do blood pressure. And, and I was there with the need was so great. There were so many people in need and I got caught up and I was helping. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I forgot about those two children that I'm responsible for. So I, it was like molasses again. I was, people were pulling at me and I was pulling through this and I got all the way through to the, distracted many times and got to the door and walked out of that operating room right into an ER. And they were doing code blue on people. And I got caught up again. We need you. We need you. We need, you know, we have this. We got to do this. Help me with this. Shock this patient. And I got caught up there and I was doing, you know, and I finally was like, oh, I need to, I'm responsible for those two children. So I found my way through that because each room escalated. The need escalated in each room. Found, finally got to the door and I opened the door. I did not get into another <laughs> stressful room, but I walked out and I, I was looking for the L-shaped panel buildings and across the grounds, there was, the dream went to like to black and white and it, it really looked like a concentration camp. It, there was, there was like barbed wire and, and I walked across the grounds to this and, and when I walked up, there were all these children unattended and they were just wild and they were half their clothes off and on, and they hadn't eaten. And there was one woman sitting on a chair in the middle, and she was just so burned out. <laughs> what, trying, she, she couldn't even deal with all the children. They were just going wild. And I went to open the gate to get in, and she said, you don't want to come in here. You do not want to come in here. You will never get out. And I... I I hesitated, like, I don't want to go in, but it was like I knew that I had been called for these two children. I had been called. I was responsible. I was on an assignment, and so I went on in, and the L-shaped panel buildings was kind of like an old Holiday Inn or old motel where you, with the no curtains that had been abandoned, and there were, in all these rooms, these children that were just un unattended and were just wild. And I went to open one door because I felt so bad for the children. And this one child came at me and I had to shut the door and I had to say, I've got to find the two children that, that I'm responsible, I'm accountable to. And I went past all those rooms and, and having to look at that need and pass it. And I went downstairs and when I got into this dungeon-like area, there were the two children and they were already beginning to act out in their abandonment. And I opened the door and I grabbed them and they ran out to me. And while I was hugging them, <laughs> I woke up and the Lord clearly spoke to me upon awakening. And he said, Kwamanique, you can no longer be motivated by need. The times are coming when the need will be so great. You're going to have to know where I've sent you and be where I've sent you and not be moved by need and believe that I will send someone else to those needs. Because if you don't show up on your assignment, it will not be fulfilled. It was like me as an empath having to understand that I had to have boundaries. 
and that I was going to have to maybe at times go against even the way I was made in order to do what God had called me to do. You know, impasse, we, we also pick up on other aspects of the environment. We will have a deep connection to nature and animals. I, at times, you know, when, and I, I'm not a nature worshiper, hear me, believers. Uh, I am also a believer. But there are times when there's a, dr- a drought or something, and, and I can feel almost sad for the trees. I, I look at the leaves, and I feel the pain of that. And I can connect deeply to animals, There is just a connection. That's probably why I get bees out of the pool when they're drowning. Um, Empaths pick up on sights, sounds, smells, and other sensations that people don't notice. There's times, you know, when my my friend Anita and I, we were both therapists, both very strong empaths, which made us really good therapists because we could pick up on things in the room. We do group therapy. I could be working with someone and still feel the energy of the room. And I don't mean that in a, a new agey way. I mean, it's just an intuitiveness, God-given gift. And, and, I, and we would go to a movie or something, and sometimes we would feel the stuff on people in a crowd. Crowds can be hard for me. They can be hard for impasse because we go into an area and we will actually pick up on a lot and pick up on feelings of others. Like I can pick up sometimes when a person is angry or sad, even when that that hasn't registered to that person. I feel that. I feel the anger. I feel the sadness. I feel those feelings. I can I can feel them, which, like I said, is helpful as a therapist, but I've had to learn as a person that I can absorb that, you know, Empaths are, are hyper, hyper aware of things, sensitive to sights, smells, sounds, and, and that doesn't always bother other people. And I've noticed when, when my boundaries are down, I have to be more, like if, if I'm having the time, like if, if I were to get the flu or something like that, I have to be more careful during those times because I'll be more affected by those things around me. I have to practice more boundaries my being an empath is probably why I had the ability to connect with Ellie on the level that I did and to intuitively know what she needed. And like I said, it also made me a good therapist. And it makes people who are in the healthy professions or pastors, it makes them really good at reading people and knowing what people need. The hardest thing for us is, is to really take care of ourselves. Being an empath can be a good thing, especially if you're in a helping profession that requires working with people, diagnosing problems. But as I said, we have to protect our energy. We can feel overly responsible, and therefore we can also be the target of narcissists. Because the reason impasse can be the target of narcissists is we have such a huge amount of empathy on board, we cannot imagine people having none or little. It's just unfathomable to us. And so when you're in a position with a narcissist, a psychopath, so it's about a predatory person, sometimes empaths will read that and then they'll go against it because they can't imagine someone being that way. I, had a, I have a friend that told me last year, she was talking and she said someone told her she needed to be less of a vacuum cleaner and more of a leaf blower. And I just love that analogy because empaths are wired as vacuum cleaners sucking up all the emotions of others and it can affect us more physically and emotionally than the actual person who's having the feelings. That's why 
as an empath, I had to work on codependency. They're not the same thing. They're two different things, but I had to really work on codependency so that I didn't get myself in trouble with my empathy. We can't save the world. So we have to learn to be a leaf blower at times. And we have to trust God to be the vacuum cleaner in the lives of others. Because God can handle it. We can't. We're not Atlas. Our bodies are not made to carry that stuff. They're just not. Although empathy costs us something, the world will not remain intact without it. Chesed. It says God founded the foundation of the world world is God's chesed, loving kindness. Some surveys say that empathy is declining in society these days. And that means that we're going to see a more narcissistic society that's focused more on self and not on our fellow man. And, and that's really concerning. This means we need to cultivate empathy in our own lives and then guard what we have on board. Learn how to utilize who we are and those gifts. It says in the scriptures that we should use those gifts under the power and unction of the Holy Spirit. It's imperative that we work on understanding others and we allow ourselves to see the perspective of others. I mean, if you're working in diversity, any time we've got to understand that we're not all the same. We're not supposed to be all the same. That would be like a choir that only sang soprano. There was no tenor. There was no bass. There was no alto. We're supposed to be in harmony, not always in agreement on everything. We we're supposed to work on being able to see the perspective of others in order that we can cultivate empathy and more compassion in our lives and the world around us. Part of what happened to the First Nations people was the misunderstanding of the culture where our people had to, our drums were taken, cut their hair, take our language, burn our regalia. That was misunderstanding. If there had been understanding of the diversity and other perspective, then then the other culture would have been able to see beauty in the First Nations culture. And they would have been able to say, explain this to us. We want to have understanding. That is why it's needed. As faith-based people, we can be conduits, and we should be conduits, of God's understanding and compassion for others. And, you know, God had a higher understanding of First Nations. He created them to be that way. He created First Nations, our people. It wasn't God that came up with that idea to get rid of the culture, because all the tribes and tongues are going to be at, at, at the throne. And I'm, I'm sure we're not all going to be dressed alike. He is a, God is a God that loves culture. He created the cultures. So that's why we have to have his understanding and his compassion for others. He has an infinite supply. You know, in both situations in my life, as a mother transitioning to a new role with my adult sons and as a cat mother adopting a traumatized cat, I needed revelation, a godly revelation, to see a perspective from a higher view. It says in the scriptures to lean not on your own understanding, which means to lean on God's, which is higher than ours. I have limited understanding as a human, but God's understanding is limitless. 
When I get his understanding on a matter, it always blows away my perceived ideas and judgments, and it radically transforms my thinking. It increases my empathy and therefore my compassion, and I then can become his agent in the world, and I can represent him honorably in the right way. So thank you for being with me today. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate the time you've invested in yourself. I appreciate being able to do this with you because it's caused me, it's placed a demand on my life and caused me to have a responsibility to get all this in order for my children and grandchildren. Not that everything that I'm sharing on here will even apply to them, but I want to have it there for them just in case. It's like a roadmap. And I may be creating this out of my own desire because I so wanted that connection myself. And, I'm, and so I'm saying maybe one of my grandchildren, this will be something that, you know, they might all, but if one of them or even a great grandchild gets a hold of this, it can be comforting to them. It can be challenging. It can be inspiring. So I thank you for, for being there, being the audience and on this journey with me. It's so important to me, and I appreciate it. I want to also direct you to our website, indigenousmessengers.com. There's many things on there, books, and this podcast will end up being a book, The Beatitudes. We're in process right now of making it into a book. And also, um, I want to say that I'm going to have one or two more regular podcasts, and then I'm going to take a few weeks off because we are doing a gathering in Richmond, Virginia. The I think it's the 14th, 15th, and 16th of July. It's going to be incredible. First Nations worship, First Nations speaker speakers. It's going. It's the gathering is First Nations honors Israel, and the whole focus is going to be on Israel. So, if you would like information on that, you can go. Uh, to n-d-i-g-e-n-u-s at cs.com. That's our email. I'll say it again, n-d-i-g-e-n-u-s at cs.com. It's going to be a great time. We're inviting people to come and join us there. We're going to have a great worship experience. And on Saturday night, we will have a grand entry and all the First Nations people that are a part of that will be in our regalia. We're going to honor the Creator. We're going to honor the Lord. We're going to worship there together. And Chief Joseph and um, Dr. Larlin Riverwind, Elizabeth Hawker, and Atcheret Shemuel from Israel, uh, they will be our speakers. I'm going to be the host. We'll be doing some protocol. And we have an amazing worship team. I will let you know who those people are probably next week. I'm going to have two more podcasts and then I will probably be taking a sabbatical for a few weeks and start back in. And when I start back in with the the second part of the podcast, it's going to be for men and women in relationships. It's going to be the be attitudes. And I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on what society has done to men and women in relationships, what misogyny has done and also how misogyny has also been difficult on men, not just women. So I look forward to that. I want to dedicate this time and this podcast to my children and my grandchildren. I love them so much, and thank you for joining me today. 
Thank you for listening to Beatitudes with Dr. Kwamenik Sukina. Be sure to follow the show for more tools on how to experience wisdom in your everyday life for you to walk in victory with the right attitude.